If you have your scripture this morning, copy of of your word, we are in Jonah chapter 2 this morning. Jonah chapter 2. And uh, so as you're turning there, that's in the the Old Testament, the book of Jonah. It's one of the the minor prophets as we we call it. Jonah chapter 2. And we will look at the whole chapter of Jonah chapter 2. This morning, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version as I, as I read the passage. Just a reminder, we're kind of using, or I'm kind of using, uh, this book by Sinclair Ferguson, kind of as a launching pad for the, the sermons called Man Overboard, and you can order it from the Banner of Truth uh, Publishing. Um, so if that's something that you want to pick up, uh, be my guest, pick it up. It's a great book, and... Um, it'd be good to, to pick up and, and read through. It's a great book. But this morning, Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I've titled this message, Saved from the Depths. As you can see from your bulletin, we uh, only have two main points uh, this morning. Now, I know some of you think, oh, that's going to be a super short sermon. If you don't know me very well, you would think that. So, um, but uh, <laughs> no, uh, but we're going to talk about this idea of Jonah being saved from the death. When we last um, left Jonah, he was drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. We had looked at the spiritual privilege that Jonah had enjoyed as a prophet of God, and we uh, looked at his rebellion. And his disobedience, which ultimately broke his communion with God. We noticed his downward trend that Jonah kept following. How he, how he seemed to go lower and lower. He went down to Joppa, the text said. He went down to the ship. He went down uh, into the ship to sleep. And eventually he went down uh, into the sea and then into the belly of the fish. However, even as we notice Jonah seemingly getting further 
and further away from God, we can't ignore the fact that the book reveals to us the sovereignty of who God is, especially in relationship to evangelism. We see the book of Jonah take that turn in chapter 2. In the Hebrew text, chapter 2 actually begins with verse 17 of chapter 1. And what we must understand is that this great fish which swallowed Jonah in judgment for his disobedience to God was also sent by God in order to prepare Jonah for the evangelistic mission that God had for Jonah in the first place, which God had called Jonah to. But remember, Jonah ran away from the mission that God had. Jonah was bound and determined that he was going to run from the will of God. Even when he asked to be thrown into the sea, many commentators think that this was Jonah wanting to die rather than go to Nineveh and evangelize them. However, what's God's plan? God's plan is that Nineveh will be evangelized. God had decided that he would show grace to the Ninevites. And he's filled with love and pity for the Ninevites. Even more, God has decided that Jonah, this disobedient prophet, will be the instrument that he chooses to bring the Ninevites to repentance. And even though Jonah is reluctant, even though Jonah is trying to flee from what God would have him to do, God has decided that Jonah is going to be the evangelist to the Ninevites. God shows mercy to Jonah, and Jonah then knows the depths of God's mercy before God pours out his mercy on the Ninevites and uses Jonah as the instrument to pour out his mercy on the Ninevites. Interestingly enough, we never read where God asked Jonah, Jonah, is it okay if I throw you into the sea? Jonah, is it okay if I have a giant fish come and swallow you up? Jonah, is it okay if I then have that fish spit you onto dry land? Jonah, is it okay that I send you to the Ninevites in the first place? God's plan was for Jonah to go to the Ninevites. And he was going to get there one way or the other. Sometimes we hear people say, well, God doesn't do anything against our will. Really? Read the book of Jonah. Or God doesn't overcome our will. Really, read the book of Jonah. Look at the life of Saul, who is later the Apostle Paul. As chapter 2 begins, we see the sovereignty of God on full display. He has taken control of, of inanimate nature by his sovereign will and used it to speak to Jonah when the sea is rough and they think that the boat is going to crash, he uses that to speak to Jonah. And now his sovereign will takes control of a great fish and it swallows Jonah and it proves to be an instrument of God to further deal with Jonah. 
We can't forget what the scripture says. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And the Lord appointed a great fish. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't, oh, you know, Jonah fell into the water and there just happens to be a giant fish and it comes and swallows Jonah up. The Lord appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. We could focus on the, on the fish and we could spend a great deal of time examining this fish and whether we could say, well, is this a whale or is it a fish that God created just for this purpose? And we could spend a lot of time talking about that. There's been stories that have been used to try to prove that this could happen um, to give uh, these stories are, are come out to give some authenticity to this account to say, we'll see it could happen. One of them is about a sailor who fell overboard and was swallowed by a fish of similar proportions to this large fish in the account of Jonah and a sailor harpooned the fish and the fish vomited the uh, sailor out and um, uh, and so they, they tell this story to give some, some, some um, credibility to this account of Jonah. There's another story of a fish found dead on the shores and where they dissected this fish and it had swallowed a horse. And they try to say, well, see, uh, a fish could easily swallow a man. I'm not saying that we should not examine the authenticity of Scripture. I think that's a good thing to do. But we don't need stories in order to do so. We don't need a, another story to, to test whether Scripture is authentic or not. The point being God is God. And He can perform miracles. Otherwise, He's not God. He can cause a fish to swallow a man. And He can control the weather and he can call sailors to throw Jonah overboard in the first place. Because God is in control of all things. The great fish can cause us to be diverted from the real issue. And we can start examining this fish and look at the fish and, and that sort of thing. And it, it can cause us to not see the real issue. The narrative of Jonah is not about the fish. When we, when we look at Jonah, uh, it's not... About a fish. You say, well, pastor, why, why do you have a fish on your background up there? Well, because that's just so we can recognize what we're talking about. But that's not the narrative. It's not all about the fish. The fish is like a cameo role in a movie. Or, or have you ever watched a movie and sometimes they, um, they have calls for extras? So you can go be an extra in the movie and sometimes people but oh I want to be an extra in this movie and they'll drive over to this town and stay there just so they maybe could be an extra that's like the that's like Jonah or that's like the fish in the story of Jonah he's the extra we may lose sight of the greatness of God when we focus on the greatness of the fish it's this story is about God it's not about a fish there are several miracles that are taking place in this passage of Scripture. 
But one of the most fascinating is the fact that Jonah is preserved over such an extended period of time. We see God working, yes, in the belly of the fish, but we see him working in a deeper way in the heart of the prophet Jonah. Not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. He's bestowing grace upon Jonah. There's a miracle found in the restoration of Jonah and ultimately in his salvation from the belly of the fish as it spits him up on dry ground. Jonah recognized that God had had um, uh, God, God had done a work in his heart through this whole experience as he summarized. Psalm 18 says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Those words sound familiar. I called out to the Lord and out of my distress he answered me. Jonah chapter 2 verse 1. But this merely sets the scene for Jonah. What we really see is that restoration to God begins where rebellion formerly existed. In other words, where Jonah began to rebel is where he will also be restored. And that's how repentance works. In the Old Testament, repentance was to go back on the path from which one came. We have an illustration of this for us in the New Testament in the parable of the prodigal son. The son must painfully make his way back home to the father on the same paths that he took when he left his father. Jonah is the Old Testament prodigal. He must return on the same path in which he rebelled. And therefore, we see this taking place. We see this miracle of restoration in the life of Jonah. And the first thing I want us to notice is this, that Jonah cried out to the Lord. Jonah cried out to the Lord. In verse 2 it says, Then Jonah prayed. Then Jonah prayed. Jonah is crying out to the Lord. He's making a return to this conscious presence of God. Remember, he tried to flee the presence of God in chapter 1. That was his path of rebellion. And now he returns to the presence of God. That is his path of restoration. Like the psalmist who cried out in Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Jonah is pouring out his soul in the presence of God. He is confessing to God his thoughts of him. However, we can't miss the point. Jonah the prophet, who tried as hard as he could to flee the very presence of God, is now entering into the presence of God. He's praying to God. Jonah's come to his senses. He, he cries out to God, the only one that can do anything about his situation. This is a mark of God's presence in someone's life, that they pray to him. We see this in the life of, of Saul of Tarsus. Ananias is encouraged by the Lord in a dream to go to Saul and welcome him into the body of believers. And what did Ananias do? 
He said, not him, Lord, not Saul, the one who persecutes us. I've heard of the hard things that this man has done. And the greater harm he intends to do to your people. How will Ananias know that Saul has truly received God's grace? Well, in verse 11 of Acts chapter 9, it reads, Behold, he's praying. It's much the same for Jonah. Jonah had gone against his conscience. Jonah had tried to flee the presence of the Almighty. Jonah had done all he could to get away, to run away from the presence of God. But look at Jonah. He's no longer running from God, but he's running to God. Look at verse 4 and look at verse 7 of chapter 2. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet, yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah's return to God and is crying out to God instead of fleeing from God happens in dramatic fashion. We see the depths to which Jonah would go to flee from God and we see the lengths to which God will go to bring Jonah back to him. What we can't miss is that that though Jonah deserved to be destroyed by God, though Jonah deserved for the wrath of God to be poured out on him, God does not destroy him, but instead God restores him. The focus is not on how he was restored, but that he was restored. It's not how it took place, but the fact that Jonah was restored by God's grace. And God can use any means necessary to bring us back to Himself. They could be dramatic means. They could be not dramatic at all. However, God is the judge of what is necessary to bring us back. And we are not the judge of what is necessary to bring us back to God. God knows what it will take to restore us to Him. He knows what it's going to take. What is vital is that we are restored in the first place and that we know His presence is with us and that we feel both the shame of our sin and the beauty of God's grace when He restores us. And that's exactly how Jonah feels. He knows the shame of his sin, but he recognizes the beauty of God's grace. And that's not only for Christians as individuals, but that's corporately as a body of believers as well. You know, churches oftentimes spend a great deal of time with strategies and methodologies and formulas and all these things. But is that really what is important? If we try to do all these things apart from the power and the presence of God, and we try to accomplish them by our own strength, they will always fail. All too often what is missing is the most important thing in the world. In our personal lives, in our evangelistic efforts, in our worship services, in our preaching, what is often 
missing is a conscious presence of God. I'm not saying that God is not present. We know that He is omnipresent, meaning He is everywhere present. Not that He is in things, but He is everywhere. There's nowhere that you can go that God is not there. But all too often, we go about our daily lives, even as Christians, even as a body of believers, we go about our daily lives and our routines without ever consideration as to whether God is a part of our life or not, without even a conscience um, acknowledgement that God is present there with us. As we go about doing our daily things, we don't even acknowledge that God is with us. And so often we think that God is only with us when we come to church. That's a sad state to be in. Too often, the summation of our Christian life is that we date Jesus for an hour on Sunday morning. Because that's what it amounts to, right? We come to church for one hour on Sunday morning, and we, it's a date with Jesus. We got our date with Jesus Sunday morning, this time, time to date Jesus. And then we go about the rest of our week, the rest of our day, doing our own thing without a conscious presence of who God is. Everything in our life, if we call ourselves followers of Christ, everything in our life should be secondary to the power and the presence of God. But so often, it becomes king. So often we do what we want with our time. We do what we accomplish what we want to accomplish with our money. And we think, God, well, you're just secondary. I give you an hour on Sunday morning. Or if we're really lucky, maybe we give them two hours. Or it depends on how long the pastor preaches. We might give them even a little more. But we think, for some reason, we think that that's, that's it. That's what being a Christian is all about. But it's not. We should seek a conscious presence of God in our worship. We should seek to cry out to the Lord. We should seek His power. We should seek to have a knowledge of His presence. And with, with, with so much, we should seek that so much so that when others come in to worship with us, that if they don't know Christ, their hearts would be exposed to who God is. I'm convinced that we rarely worship in the power nor in the seeking to know the presence of the Lord in our churches today. Imagine if people fell down and confessed the presence of the Lord like they did in the church at Corinth. When we read in 1 Corinthians 14, 24, and 25, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Could you imagine our worship services so in tune with God that unbelievers declare that God is really among us? Can you imagine that people from the outside looking in saying God is really among those people? This is ultimately the goal of our salvation, that we would be present before the Lord of glory, that we would one day stand in the glory of his presence. However, we don't have to wait to be in his presence because God makes us conscious of his presence 
today, right here, right now, even in the church service. And, and he makes us conscious of what he is doing. And he is prepared to go to whatever lengths is necessary to make us conscious of his presence. This is always brought out so clearly to me when I attend a worship service with the Haitian people. As they sit in a service for three hours in the middle of a very hot building with no air conditioning. And they read scripture and they sing songs. And then they read some more scripture. And then they do some praying. And then they read some more scripture. And then they do some more praying. And then they proclaim the word of God through preaching. And then they pray some more. And then they read some more scripture. And they sing some more songs. And I witness a people that have so little in their life. So little. But are clearly conscious of the presence of God. And I often contrast that with, with those I see in the States who have so much, so much, and yet they turn their back on the voice of God time and time again. We have so much, and what do we do? We complain about the thermostat, or the pews aren't comfortable enough, or it's too hot, or it's too cold. Or the pastor went too long. Or the service wasn't as long as I thought it would be. That rarely happens. <laughs> but we find ways to complain. You know why? We don't realize. Church. You're in the presence of God. Not just here on Sunday morning. Here, Sunday morning, corporately, we are in the presence of God. But you are individually as well. But I'm talking corporately. When we come in, we're in the presence of God. We sing praises to God. We glorify the name of Jesus Christ. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ. That's why we gather together. And it shouldn't matter to us how hot it is, how cold it is, whether that service is an hour, two hours, three hours, whether I stood up too long or whether I sat down too long. None of that should matter. None of it. Whether I raised my hand or didn't raise my hand, whether I kept my hands in my pockets, it shouldn't matter. You are in the presence of God. Corporately. And that's all that should matter. It is also brought out so clearly to me that we are in the presence of God when I see God demolish someone's comforts and they're barren and naked before a holy God left with nothing but their tears and their broken spirit. And the amazing thing is, not what God has done to break that person, but what is so amazing to me is to see them walk back into God's presence and see them restored. What is so amazing in my life is not the, what God's done to break me time and time again. Because I've had it happen. But what is so amazing is that God allows me to be restored in the first place. That's amazing, church. 
Here's what I want us to, or what I want to say to you today. Some of you feel like you are far from God. Some of you played the Jonah. You've tried to flee from his presence. You've reached the depths of despair. You've gone your own way. You've done your own thing. But here is the beauty of all of that. The beauty is not in watching God break his children or watching God chastise his children or watching God bring his children to nothing. But the beauty is in watching God pour out his mercy on his children and restoring them into the consciousness of his presence. And so I say to you today, if you've walked away, if you've fled, if you've done your own thing and you've gone about your own business, the beauty is not in watching God break you, but the beauty will be in watching God restore you to a consciousness consciousness of his presence and maybe that happens individually but maybe it has to happen eventually corporately as a church that we understand that we're in the presence of God not only did we see Jonah cry out to God and enter back into that conscious presence of God but secondly we see Jonah returned to God's word Jonah returned to God's word remember a few weeks ago we talked about how Jonah Jonah left God's word, and now we see Jonah returning to God's word. As we read through Jonah chapter 2, we would almost think that we were reading one of the Psalms because it sounds so much like the Psalms. Parts of it sound like Psalm chapter 18, and parts of it sound like Psalm 42. In fact, if we were to go and read those Psalms, we would find a very strong similarity between them and Jonah chapter 2. In fact, they are so similar that there are scholars who feel that this chapter was added in later. They feel that Jonah could never have said these words. Obviously, I do not agree with that, but there are those who hold to that view. The fact is, Jonah would have no problem praying a prayer like this. In fact, there are many men of God who still use the Psalms today as a prayer resource in their approach to God. I know I often use them during extended prayer times. I'll just pray through different psalms. Pray them back to God. It's very beneficial for your prayer life. Two years ago, well, when we went to Haiti, we were up in the mountains. And I, I shared with some of you that we, we had all these different prayer times. Midnight, we got up, we prayed. 4 a.m., we got up, we prayed. I can't remember, it was four times. I remember midnight and 4 a.m. Because I had to be woken up. Right? And we prayed for one hour each time. At the 4 a.m. prayer service at the church, there'd be all these people from the village walk and show up at the church at 4 a.m. for the prayer time. We prayed one hour each time. And some of the team members said, how, how do you pray that long? They were asking me, they're like, how are you staying in prayer that long? And I shared with them, I said, I pray through psalms. Just start praying through different psalms. It's no problem to pray an hour. And so I don't think it's a big deal. I believe that's exactly what Jonah was doing. He's recalling the psalms. He's praying them back to God. Jonah, who had turned from the audible word of God, is now turning to the written word of God. God's word should be vital in our lives. We should hope in it. We should turn to it. Psalm 119 says, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Psalm 130 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I 
hope. True followers of Jesus Christ turn to the Word of God in their greatest time of need to see what God has to say. Now I want us to stop and think about Jonah for a moment. Jonah had to feel the grace of God towards himself before he could ever be a minister of that grace to the people of Nineveh. God held Jonah in the belly of the fish so that Jonah would know God's grace all the more. There is a transformation that comes when we realize that we do not deserve God's grace. If we deserved it, then it wouldn't be grace. And when we come to the realization that it has nothing to do with us, we then understand how we can show such grace to other people. Because it has nothing to do with us. This was Jonah. He didn't deserve God's grace. But he was going to feel it. And then in turn be able to deliver that same grace to the Ninevites. God had tried to teach him about grace. The word he brought to his own people was a word of grace. Jonah could have easily cried out to God when he saw the hopelessness of the sailors. He could have cried out to God for grace, but he didn't. When the sailors uh, who, who, uh, who end up throwing Jonah overboard, he could have called out to grace for them in the midst of the storm. He could have been ashamed and, and realized that his own conscience, that he's going against his own conscience and called out to grace for them. He could have seen that pagans were acting like followers of God and he was not. And he could have called out to God for grace. And now Jonah is finally at his end. Now Jonah finally realizes he needs God's grace. And he admits he feels away from God's presence. He admits he feels the absence of God just like the Ninevites would feel. Perhaps even as we felt in our own lives. Jonah is coming to the point where he sees his own wretchedness. And he understands that he's spiritually bankrupt. And that he was in desperate need of the grace that only God can give. It's this very thing. It's this spiritual bankruptcy of Jonah. That's going to equip him. For the work he would do in Nineveh. So often it's, it's when we are at our end. When we realize we can do absolutely nothing about our situation. We have no choice but to call out to God and trust in His Word that we see God move in such a profound way. The Lord delights to do this in His people. He did it in the life of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah was called to preach both judgment and salvation, both wrath and grace. Isaiah was to to denounce the righteousness of the people as filthy rags in the face of a holy God. But even in the midst of this, Isaiah learned that he was uh, the instrument that God would use to tell the people that they were unclean. And he cried out that he knew that he was unclean because he said, I am a man of unclean lips. He was not fit for the service of God in order to be a prophet to sinners. Isaiah had to learn of his own sinfulness. It was the same with the Apostle Paul. In Galatians, Paul makes the argument for the grace of God, and he does so with great power and with great authority. In later years, the same Apostle Paul is learning about grace in a way which he had never known when he has asked for God to remove a thorn from his flesh. 
and he learns that God's grace was sufficient for him, for all his needs, and that God's strength was made perfect in his weakness. Paul experienced and knew God's grace to teach about God's grace. This is how God works in Jonah. Jonah had tried to flee from God's presence. He tried to flee from God's word. And now, he's crying out to God. Now, he has a conscience desire for the presence of God. He had fled away from the word, and now he's fleeing to the word. Jonah has come full circle. Think about Simon Peter in the New Testament. He was brought back to Christ in the same way he departed. After the resurrection of Christ, Simon is brought to a fire burning coals along the seashore, reminiscent of the fire that he had gathered around where he had denied the Lord three times. The question he was asked was, do you know him around that fire? And he denied it. And now, the question the Lord asks is, do you love me? Peter was like Jonah. He had a rapid descent. Peter fled from Christ's word. He fled from his presence, but he could not flee from his providence. Like Jonah, Peter was brought back to the, the words of Christ. Luke says to us, and he remembered the word the Lord had spoken. Like Jonah, Peter went out and wept bitterly, but he wept his way back into the conscience presence of God. And as we look at this account of Jonah, we understand that it parallels many accounts in Scripture and it parallels many accounts in human history where people who have formerly fled the presence of God, where people who have tried to flee from what God was calling them to do, they are brought back in the very path, on the very path that they took to flee is a path that God brings them in return. And I wonder this morning, if the story of Jonah echoes in our own heart. I wonder this morning if we are like Jonah, trying to flee from the Lord. I would call on you this morning, return to his work and return to a consciousness of his presence. God is merciful. He allows us to return to him when we are in such a pitiable plight. Listening closely, God knows where you are. You can't flee from him. But the great mystery of mercy is not that you have walked away from God. But that God would cry out to you, return to me. That God would hunt you down And that God would take you to the point of despair. And that he would force your return to him. That's the great mystery. God is immutable, meaning he is unchanging. He does not alter his promise. And when he loves us as his children, that does not change. It doesn't, you can run as far away as you possibly can think. But he loves you still you can't run away and those of you that are parents you know that your child can run away from you as long as they want it's not going to change your love for your child 
You still love them. How much greater is the love that God has for his children? In church, you can run and you can run and you can run. God will force your return. And he cries out to you, return to me. He says, if I bought you, you will be mine. Return to me. He's still your father. Return to him. He's still your Lord. Perhaps this morning you would say, I'm not a child of God. Perhaps you would say, I've played the hypocrite. I've made a profession of faith in my own strength. I've done it by my own power. Perhaps you were never truly converted and perhaps you don't really know Christ as your Savior. If this is the case, let the mercy which God shows to sinners embolden you to cry out to him this morning and may he break you into a thousand pieces with his hammer of his word and may he put you back together again and may you understand that he has mercy on sinners and may he save you this morning and show shall his praise be exceedingly great in your heart and may you cry out to him for salvation because he is the only one that can save let me close by reading the prophet Isaiah this morning seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. So I ask you this morning, maybe this morning you recognize that you fleeing from the Lord. Maybe you don't have a conscious presence of of God in your life. And I plead with you to return. Listen to his voice as he calls out to you, come back to me. And maybe this morning you don't even know the Lord. He has mercy on sinners. Maybe you need to place your faith in him. However, the Lord may have spoken to you this morning. I'll be standing down front. If you feel like you need to to pray or have somebody pray with you or you just want to pray by yourself or whatever. Maybe you don't even know. Just want you to know I'll be down front this morning. I'll be down there to receive you if you if you want somebody to pray with you. Or if you just want to go on your own, you can just come up and pray up here at the altar. Pray in your pew. But if you feel in your conscience God's speaking to you, I want to encourage you to respond to Him this morning. Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank You.